you have a Bible with you, you can open to Matthew chapter 6. We'll look at verse 9. And um, the text is also printed. It's pretty short in the bulletin for you. Um, Let's pray and we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask for your help as we consider your word this morning. We pray that uh, as Jesus uh, taught his disciples, we would truly learn more about what it means to be your disciples, especially when it comes to prayer. We pray that you would teach us to pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Um, All right. Well, uh, Cliff Williams, Clifford Williams, he's a professor at uh, Trinity in Deerfield, Illinois. He's a professor of philosophy. He wrote uh, one of uh, my favorite books, actually. It's a book called The Singleness of Heart. It's not about um, how to live as an unmarried person. Uh, the subtitle is actually uh, re- uh, Restoring the Divided Soul. So singleness of heart, restoring the divided soul. The main idea is that Christians have divided souls. Uh, we want to pursue God and his glory, and at the same time we're also plagued by sin and don't want to pursue God and his glory. And uh, Williams explores what was really going on inside of our minds, what's really going on uh, with our affections in our hearts. And it's really one of the most insightful books you could ever read. Early on, he talks about something that he calls inner newsreels. It's a term that he picked up from uh, Ernest Becker. And this is what he says, uh, Williams says about inner, inner newsreels. One of the prominent, though scarcely acknowledged, facts about our minds is that they're constantly active in between the times when we talk and act. During these times, a continuous, often disconnected series of thoughts, feelings, and images occupies our minds. Usually, we're relatively unaware of what goes on in our inner newsreels, or even that they exist. If we could stop their rapid rush and inspect them, we would come to know what we really love and what really bothers us. We would find the motives underlying our life's projects and the reasons for the things we say. So I think inner newsreels is good. I mean, you've, you've seen a newsreel and it's just like, right? It's flashing these different images of, um, of things that are being reported, right? Images, just really a cacophony of things, right? And that's what's going on inside of our minds all the time. Uh, whether you're sitting there silently, um, walking down the street, uh, engaged in conversation, uh, this is, these are the things that are just flashing through our minds the speed of thought, you know, and we're, we're not aware even of uh, the things that are on our new inner newsreel for, for the most part. Clifford uh, Williams proceed, proceeds to explain uh, then what are the kind of predominant features of those newsreels, right? He helps us to examine our inner newsreels and uh, really in doing so he exposes the hideous underbelly of our souls, <laughs> right? Um, first time I read it, I basically had to take a paragraph at a time and then stop and check for bleeding and shove my guts back in. (laughs) Um, uh, Felt like my heart was being pierced every paragraph. 
I was being shown that my, my inner newsreel, those constantly uh, churning, mostly hidden thoughts and feelings and images were, were all about bringing glory to myself. Uh, but the scripture says that the prayer of the Christian's heart is, um, like it says in Psalm 115, not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory. Uh, and this is found everywhere in Scripture. Clearly, we were made to glorify God above all things. So much so is this found in Scripture very clearly that um, the Bible's teaching of uh, our purpose for our existence is summed up, and it shows right up at the beginning of our catechism, you know, things that we believe um, that the Scripture teaches us, uh, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end, the, the chief purpose, the main ultimate purpose of man, of humanity, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Right? It's so clear in the scriptures that uh, that's kind of the, the organizing principle of our existence, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, is teaching us that that's what we need to pray for. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right, that, that verb hallowed, we don't ever use that um, in English nowadays, but it, it means to sanctify or to revere or to esteem as holy, to honor as holy. So there was a quote, I think it was in the beginning of the bulletin there, by D.A. Carson. He says that to pray that God's name be hallowed is not to pray that God may become holy, but that he may, he may be treated as holy, that his name should not be despised by the thoughts and conduct of those who have been created in his image. Right? And you see this uh, very clearly in one of the Ten Commandments, the Third Commandment, uh, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 7, it says, You shall not take the name of Yahweh in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Rather than take his name in vain, treat it... Um, meaninglessly or empty, right? Uh, rather than do that, we're supposed to sanctify it. We're supposed to glorify his name. And it's supposed to be more than merely external praise, which uh, I think comes easy for, for some of us, right, to open our mouths and sing of God's glory. Um, but we can do that without, without the concentration of our minds. We can do that without the affections of our hearts. And it's supposed to be that praise and worship come from our hearts and our minds. Uh, John Piper <clears throat> says in his book, Desiring God, true worship must include inward feelings that reflect the worth of God's glory. If God is actually worth glorifying, then true worship is reflected when our hearts feel that. Right? Our hearts feel the worth of God's glory. And Piper gives an illustration then of, um, of a husband who... Um, you, know, you can imagine it's their anniversary, and he brings home a beautiful bouquet of her favorite flowers, and they get all dressed up, and he takes her out to a really fancy restaurant to celebrate their anniversary, and the wife, at the end of it all, asks, why do you treat me so well? Why have you done this? And, um, and if he responds, just doing my duty, ma'am, as a husband, um, then, then she's not going to feel honored or cherished, is she? Right, but uh, instead, that sucks all the life, all the truth, all the beauty 
right out of his actions. Right? Those, those flowers become meaningless. That dinner becomes meaningless. Um, <clears throat> but if he responds from his heart, why do I do this? It's because I love you. Because it's my delight to spend time with you and to honor you like this. Then, uh, then she truly is honored. And that's the way that it's supposed to be with our worship. It's to be our greatest desire that God's name be hallowed, be revered, that his glory would be famous, and it would be loved by us, and it would be loved by everyone that he has made. We're supposed to long for worship, right? to fulfill the purpose for which we were made. We see um, Psalm 96, which we read in our Old Testament reading, is all about praise, and that is supposed to be our spontaneous and constant state. Praise to God is supposed to be emanating from our souls. And it's supposed to be uninterrupted by any evil thoughts or desires. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, said, Why did God give us life, but that by living we may hallow his name? Why did he give us souls, but to admire him, and tongues, but to praise him? The excellence of a thing is the end for which it was made, as of a star to give light, and of a plant to be fruitful, so the excellence of a Christian is to answer the end of his creation, which is to hallow God's name and live to that God by whom he lives. So we're supposed to long to fulfill the purpose for which we've been made, and it's supposed to be our most earnest prayer, our, our priority in prayer, the prayer that fills and gives shapes to and directs all of our other prayers, that great organizing prayer of all the others, right? And all of this sounds amazing and good. And we can imagine that if our hearts were truly set on God's glory, the way they were meant to be, then, um, then we'd really, truly flourish as humans created in God's image. But <laughs> if you stop to inspect your inner newsreel, or if you really stop to reflect on your prayers, the things that you ask of God, if you're anything like me, then um, you, you might even be horrified by what you find, right? It would appear that I'm out for my own glory rather than for God's. Um, when I pray, say for my sermon preparation, the first thought in my head is, um, God, don't let me make a fool of myself. Uh, give me something to say here. Or uh, I like to imagine that I'm a really good conversationalist and, um, and so that I, I quit listening to what people are saying as I'm trying to formulate my own amazing thoughts and insights. Right? I want to raise my children in such a way that they'll reflect well on me. And I get jealous when other people's kids uh, outdo mine. I want really nice furniture in my house to be able to impress other people. Uh, I like to come across as having a sophisticated taste in wine, though I like to come across that way modestly, of course, because no one likes a snob. When I get excited about something new, I study up on it real quick so that I can know more about it than you do. And uh, after a while, when the excitement wears off, I've perfected the, uh, yeah, it's sort of passe attitude. Old news, right? Those remarks. Sometimes I avoid conflict 
because it's, uh, it's too uncomfortable to think about someone being against me, thinking poorly of me. Sometimes I'm so self-assured that I prance right into conflict. I get uh, self-protective about my glory. If you threaten my glory somehow, and if we have a good enough relationship where I feel comfortable doing so, I'll bite your head off <laughs> for threatening my glory. If not, then, um, then I'll dream about biting your head off, and I'll subtly try to persuade you of my glory. I can't do something as benign as just walking alone down the street without wondering somewhere in the back of my mind what people are thinking of me as I'm walking down the street. And um, since I'm so self-conscious, I would really appreciate it if, um, if you'd tell me I'm not the only person who does that. Right? Uh, no, I don't think that the confession of sin allowed for enough time this morning. Uh, and that's just some of the stuff on my inner newsreel. And it, it's sort of my job to be aware of stuff like that, right? That's... That's sort of my job, and and most of the time, honestly, I can't even manage that, to be aware of those hidden motives, those hidden thoughts and affections that are driving the things I do. I can't even manage that. It's hard work. Suffice it to say, God's glory, unfortunately, doesn't seem to be on my mind as much as I might like it to be, or as much as it should be. And you know what? Um, I know that you're the same way. The Bible says that you're the same way. God says that we're all the same way. And so we might as well stop pretending. Otherwise, um, if, if you're not a Christian, then you may well know and freely admit that you're not at all interested in glorifying God. Right? Um, we're all this way apart from God. All of our affections, all of our motives are sinful, rebellious, self-centered. Uh, Augustine, early church father, theologian, great theologian, um, spoke of the essence of our sinful nature, as this fancy Latin phrase goes, in curvatus in se, in curvatus in se, right? So it's a human curved inward on self, right? Uh, self-seeking, having only affections for self-worship. That's the essence of sin. That's our natural state, apart from God's grace, And that's bad news for relationships. That's terrible for true relationships if you're going to have those. Um, It's it's really bad uh, for fulfilling the purpose for which you were made. Um, If you're curved inward upon yourself like that. Uh, We were were made for God's glory to hallow his name, to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul. And, um, And everything works beautifully when we fulfill that purpose. Uh, Tim Keller has a <clears throat> great little illustration that he uses uh, when he talks about the purpose for which we're made. And he says, you know, um, when a thing fulfills its purpose rightly, then you know it's, it's doing well. When you use it for something it was not made for, um, and he, he gives this illustration of a watch. Right? You've got this beautiful timepiece. It's, uh, it's inner craftsmanship. It's external. You know, it's, it's beautiful, and it's made for telling time. It's made to sit there on your wrist and tell you precisely what time it is, right? Um, when it's fulfilling that purpose, uh, it's great. It's a great watch. It's a good watch. When you use it to hammer a nail on a chicken coop that you're building, 
um, you you're gonna break it, right? That's not the purpose for which it was made. It's not gonna work. It's no longer gonna be a good watch when you use it to hammer a nail. And the problem is, when we apply that to ourselves, being made to give God glory, and yet with all of our lives pursuing our own glory, uh, the problem is we can't make ourselves change. We can't make ourselves glorify God. We can't make ourselves love him with all of our heart. We cannot stop banging the watch face on the nail head. We can't stop it. This is... uh, it's entirely unnatural for us to, to give God glory, even though we were made to do that. We will never do it of our own accord because we're curved inward upon ourselves. And if any of us are going to become interested in glorifying God, then God himself has to do something about it. He's got to give us a new heart. right? He's got to wrench our gaze away from ourselves. He's got to give us a new heart with new affections. And so you've got to pray that God's name would be hallowed in your heart. If you are a Christian, then you've got to pray that God's name would be hallowed in your heart. Right? Remember, this is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. How to pray on a regular basis. Just because you're a Christian and you talk a big game about glorifying God and everything you do doesn't actually mean that God's name is being truly hallowed in your heart got a divided soul and you will until you die or until Jesus comes back whichever one uh, comes first ontologically speaking metaphysically speaking I don't know how that works I don't know how it is that both God glorifying God honoring and then self glorifying self loving self pleasing motives are coexistent in us I don't know how that works but the Bible says clearly that it is true and that it's something we cannot fix we cannot change it about ourselves on our own. So we all need to pray all the time that more and more God would work in our hearts the desire to hallow, to glorify his name. We need to pray, God, make a longing for your glory a reality in my life, a reality in our lives. And here's how Jesus teaches us to pray it. Our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So as a a recap of last week, you can only truly pray this prayer if you know God as your heavenly father through faith in Jesus Christ. By by faith, you're an adopted son or daughter of God, and you need to know that he loves you better than any earthly father has ever loved his children. And you know this is true from God's word. It says it everywhere. So you can know for sure that when he tells you to pray for his glory— this prayer will never conflict with his love for you. If you're his adopted child, then his glory and your good are inextricably bound up together forever. So you don't have to fear that praying for God's name to be hallowed will mean somehow you'll get the short end of this relationship with God. And this doesn't give you license to be self-centered about it, right? I'm in this God-glorifying business just for my own good, right? Uh, It it means you can be assured that God is out for your good, so that praying for his glory rather than for your own is a win-win situation, so to speak, right? It's 
Uh, that's kind of a simple way to look at it, but it's true. Here's what else it means when Jesus teaches us to pray this way. Uh, what, do you, what do you think the point is when he says, hallowed be your name? Why does he teach us, hallowed be your name? Why not something more simple and direct, like our Father in heaven, be glorified? Or glorify yourself? Or, you know, simpler, what, what's the deal with the name of God being hallowed and revered? What's the significance of God's name? Well, what is God's name? In the Old Testament, it's Yahweh. I am the one who is. Right? And, he, and he reveals himself to his people as Yahweh by, uh, in a manner, his first name. Right? This is his disclosure of who he is for, for their relationship. He reveals it uh, to them. At, he reveals himself as the, the one who makes covenant promises to them for their good. He reveals himself through his name. He reveals his character, his attributes, his personality, who he really is. And if he didn't reveal himself to us, we would never know him. But he has revealed himself, and not just as some abstract God, but as a personal God with a name, and he has told us his name. And that name is not just an abstract word symbol that refers to this abstract God. The name of God reveals God. It discloses God. Right? It reflects God. His name represents him, and his name identifies him. So in the New Testament, what's the name of God? It's Emmanuel. God with us. It's Jesus. It's Yeshua, which is Yahweh saves. So God has revealed himself through his son. Jesus is the self-disclosure of God. Jesus is God's reputation among men. Right? Uh, let me read some of the scriptures from the New Testament that talk about this. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 14.9 Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He says multiple times, if you've known me, you've known the Father. If you would have known me, you would have known the Father. Right. Colossians 1, 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Right? So... His name is important. Jesus, the name of God, reveals who God is to us. His identity is the God who is with us. His character is he's the God who saves. And it's a profound mystery of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the word of God, the name, the revelation of God is person. It's the Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're praying that God would exalt Jesus in our hearts and in the world. Jesus himself prayed this way. His chief uh, passion, his greatest desire, he did it perfectly. No one ever has done this perfectly except for him. 
but his chief passion was that his Father in heaven would be glorified. And he prayed this way in John 12, as he's looking forward to the hour of his death, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven that some thought was thunder and others thought it was angels. Uh, A voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then later, Jesus prays in John 17, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So the, the hour Jesus is talking about is the hour of his death on the cross, the hour when God's glory was supremely shown forth, the, the justice of God was exalted, and his wrath against our sin was satisfied forever, and the love of God was demonstrated in the sacrifice of his son. The son was glorified through his humiliating death, and the father was glorified by his son's submission and sacrifice. And that was the moment when, uh, when Emmanuel, God with us, was given for us. It's the moment when Yahweh saved, right? when, when Jesus was lifted up. It was the ultimate hour of the glory of God's name. So when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, We're praying that God, our loving, adoptive Father, would magnify the gospel of his Son, Jesus Christ, for our worship. He would make his reputation through Jesus and his cross a big deal to us. He would make salvation loom large in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. We're asking him to grow affections in our hearts by his gospel for his glory through the gospel. We're asking him, as it's a corporate prayer, to make our lives together a showcase for the trophies of his glory and his grace. And the desire for his glory to be magnified in us, it only grows, it only grows as the desire for our own glory is extinguished by the gospel. The gospel says you have nothing to exalt about yourself. You have no glory in and of yourself. You're seeking your own glory is what what got you into this mess in the first place, where everything's broken around you, hitting the watch face against the nail head. (laughs) Your self-glorification not only breaks you, it it earns you banishment from God's glorious presence. Nevertheless, the gospel says, God is for you and not against you in Jesus Thomas Watson says, when we believe Christ's Godhead and build our hope of salvation on the cornerstone of his merit, when we see neither the righteousness of the law nor of angels can justify, but flee to Christ's blood as to the altar of refuge, this is honoring and sanctifying God's name. God never thinks his name hallowed unless his son be honored. When we come to God to give him honor as our God and our Savior through the name of Jesus, 
then we're welcomed into true glory. That which we had been banished from before, we're welcomed into. Uh, Skip Ryan said, worship, worship is a drawing near to the place we're forbidden to come. Outside of Christ, you're forbidden. You cannot honor God. You cannot come to God. But in Christ, by faith in the gospel, you are brought near for worship. The pursuit of God's glory is what you were made for. It's what you were redeemed for. And it becomes a reality in your life as you pray, as, D- as Jesus teaches you. And this is how Jesus teaches us to pray. Father, I don't know whether I'm asking for the right things here. Right? But because of Jesus, I know that, that you're out for my good. I'm assured of your love. Please be glorified here, whatever you do here. Please be glorified. If you give me this thing that I'm asking for, then help me to be thankful for it. And if you don't give me the thing, if you, if you withhold it from me, help me not to be bitter. Help me to be more dependent on you and glorify you that way. If you, if you don't change this and I end up dying, please let me die in a way that glorifies you. Father, get glory for yourself in my calling as Jesus' mercy is exalted, as Jesus' justice is exalted, as I'm transformed to be a more patient manager of other people, as I'm transformed to be a more humble employee, a more honest business person through the power of the gospel at work in my life. Do your work in my life so that my work will count for you. corporately together. Our Father, help us to worship from a right heart. Help us to love you with all of our heart and and mind and soul and strength and to love one another even as we love ourselves. Help us, Lord, take take our minds off of ourselves and make us truly God-centered. Give us a burning desire to proclaim your praises as we come to you mindful of Jesus and his sacrifice. Or um, we pray it evangelistically. Father, you've said that every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Please make that happen in our lives. Please make that happen in the lives of our friends. We want to see Jesus' fame and reputation spread abroad. We want to see our friends come to know Forgiveness and new creation and eternity through Jesus. We're sad when we drag Jesus' name through the mud with our hypocrisy. Help us to truly point our friends to you, not to seek to impress them with who we are. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For those who know God as Father, by faith in his Son, then that petition, hallowed be your name, becomes increasingly the great organizing prayer of our life. It's the prayer that drives and shapes all of our prayers. And it's a prayer because we can't bring it about in ourselves or in other people by our own power. It's a prayer. God is the one who glorifies his name And in his son, Jesus, he has done it, and he will do it again. And that's good news for you if your faith is in him.
Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know we are not supposed to take your name in vain, and yet so many of our thoughts about you seem empty or trivial. We pray that you would truly impress on us the gravity of who you are and your great love for us and the righteousness of your kingdom as it's coming into this world. We pray that you would overwhelm us with a sense of your glory, especially the the glory of your grace as your love is freely showered on us through Jesus. We pray that you would impress it not only upon our hearts and our minds, but that your name would be glorified, it would be hallowed and revered and sanctified increasingly by those who are around us. Would you use us to that end? Would you make your name great in our lives and through our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.